Hi, everybody. Um, for this episode of the podcast, um, we're actually sharing a lecture um, with you that I did for the 2020 virtual conference for the Royal College of Chiropractic Sports Sciences of Canada. Um, the conference, uh, which was entitled Move, the Psychological Biomechanics and Neurophysiological Implications of Human Movement, uh, was given uh, during uh, covid so it was a virtual conference. Um, I did a, a lecture, which is about a little more than an hour. Uh, and in that lecture, I, I gave kind of a summary of a much larger lecture that I offer um, during the FRS internal strength model, um, where I went over the evolution of human movement. Um, and in that I covered a, a variety of topics, uh, as you'll listen in the podcast, uh, I spoke very, very quickly to get as much in as I could, um, but we covered the the concepts as to how human movements are created, um, why it's important to understand the evolutionary background as to how movements are naturally selected for. Um, and, and, you know, after doing that, I made a variety of, of conclusions um, that can be taken uh, and put into practice that, to make use of this information. Because as I've always said, the more we understand how human movements are made, uh, the better we're able to manipulate those human movements in our favor. Um, so I hope you enjoy the uh, lecture. Like I said, it's a, a little over an hour. Um, and um, yeah, I guess uh, that's it. Uh, enjoy the lecture. I'm going to start to talk about the origins of human movement and how we evolved to move. Uh, so how this came about is Dr. Howitt, who's a, a close personal friend of mine, as well as a colleague, he, he asked me to, to speak at this uh, conference. And I said, well, I don't really have anything per se that's an hour long that I can speak of. But I do have concepts, of course, that I've dived into quite deeply over the years, um, myself, as well as Dr. Chivers, who's speaking later, as well as some other people in the creation of what we call the functional range systems. And I mean, at best we can, we can best summarize the functional range systems as just what we think we should be doing with other homo sapiens. I mean, that's generally what these systems are. And the way these systems were created is by doing very deep dives on a number of topics. And what I wanna do today is I wanna take you guys on a deep dive on one of the branches um, that led to the creation of the system that, that we put in place. So Dr. Howitt kind of said, you know, what do you wanna talk about? And I said, I don't really have any one particular topic. So what do you want me to talk about? And he said, talk about movement. And then I said, what about movement? He said, talk about anything and everything. So I decided to go with everything because anything seemed a little bit random. And what I mean by everything is I wanna try to uh, paint the picture of a unified theory of human movement. Uh, and the reason I do that is because the deeper we go down into the topic like this, the more we start to understand 
whether or not what we're doing is actually going to be effective. At least it was that way for me. Um, so really, I'm going to start to talk about how human movements are created, because I firmly believe that if we understand how they're created, we'll be better able to know when to interject in order to change those movements beneficially. So my title slide here, you guys might recognize from Darwin's The Origin of Species, probably the most influential book in the history of the world, in my opinion. And as you can see, I made some changes. So where Darwin was talking about evolution at the level of the species, I want to bring the evolution down to the level of the creation of motion, because the evolutionary process or the natural selective process is indeed how we select for the movements that we select for. So starting with the title page, instead of the origin of species, we're going to call this the origin of human movement by means of natural selection. And instead of saying the preservation of favored races in the struggle for life, we're going to say the preservation for neural pathways in the struggle for efficiency, because that's my conclusion as to how movements are made. They are naturally selected for based on the efficiency of the movements. <laughs> I'm going to do something a little bit different. And, and what I'm about to present, of course, in our profession, I always say this, what we present is an interpretation that we have of the scientific literature. The cool thing about our profession, and by our profession, I mean chiropractors and trainers, whoever takes care of other homo sapiens, the cool thing about our profession is that the literature, we can all interpret it slightly differently. And of course, everyone's going interpret, to interpret it slightly differently based on their backgrounds. But I, what I'm going to give you today is my interpretation of one area that I think is really, really important to study, which is how human movements are created. And I'm going to do something a little bit differently here because I know I'm going to go over on time. I actually want to start with my conclusions. And I know that sounds a little bit weird, but the reason I want to do this is because oftentimes during a presentation, uh, you know, you're building up to some conclusion. And by the time you get to it, you often forget about all of the, the deep dive work that you went in to come to that conclusion. So I figure if I give you the conclusions now, then even if I don't get to it later, you'll kind of understand during my discussion why I'm talking about this. Because I'll warn you now, there's a lot of topics I'm going to talk about that you guys are going to have no idea initially why this is part of a sport chiropractic conference. But I assure you, um, that it, 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 it will help, at least it helped me to understand how to deal with homo sapiens. So let's start with the conclusions. The major conclusion I'm going to make is this. In the sum of the parts, there's only the parts. And that's a quote by Wallace Stevens. And I'm riffing off a quote by Aristotle that a lot of people overuse. And the quote by Aristotle that I feel is overused or not used properly is, in, um, the whole is greater than the sum of the parts. People are actually misquoting Aristotle into thinking that he was saying that the parts actually magically create a whole that has nothing to do with what is going on with those individual parts. But in reality, Aristotle was talking about the concept of emergence. And what he was trying to say is that the whole is only a sum of the parts, meaning that the parts are what create the whole. That's what Wallace Stevens meant when he said in the sum of the parts is only the parts. Why is this important to me? I think it's important because I think in a, as a profession, uh, therapists, trainers, we have a tendency of, of clumping movements together and using words like kinetic chain and using words like neutral spine and telling people this joint should be used for dynamic purposes and this joint be used for stability. And you know, we, we move with our shoulder and our hip have to work together in coherence. But realistically, if your right shoulder doesn't work well and your left shoulder doesn't work well, they're not gonna work well together. And that's why I say in the sum of the parts, and there's only the parts, because the only access that we have to helping how people move are to help their movable bits. All movements are just accumulations of smaller movements by individual joints that accumulate into the bigger movement. And I think far too often, 
we're analyzing the bigger movements and watching people run and deciding if exercises are functional, but we're not giving enough attention to what the body actually is able to do. So that brings me to my next conclusion, which is the conclusion that movement is medicine. And I'm not gonna say that that's a bad conclusion, it's absolutely true, but I think it's an incomplete conclusion and it provides incomplete advice because movement in general is not medicine. Specific movement into specific articulations maintains the health of those joints specifically. So I think we have to be very careful when we say movement is medicine. When we say, you know, get up in the morning and just flow around and experiment and find your body parts and, and you know, pretend you're a, a downward dog or a whatever we're doing, not to say that those things aren't good, but I think it's incomplete advice because if your shoulder doesn't move, it doesn't matter what exercise you decide to do or what the exercise is called. If your shoulder doesn't function like a human shoulder should, it sure as heck will not function as a human shoulder should during the shoulder exercise. So we have to be very specific with what we mean when we say movement is medicine. Another conclusion is that we don't take into account, I believe, the word prerequisites enough. And the idea that we can't move where we can't move. What do I mean by that? Again, when we're talking about exercise, there's this thing to fall into this idea of functionality. You know, this movement's functional, that movement's not functional. A Turkish getup is functional, a bicep curl is more functional. I don't know about you guys today, but I know that I did not get out of bed this morning like a Turkish person. So to say that a Turkish getup is functional, I don't really understand that. What I do know is that some people don't have the joint capacities to do Turkish get-ups, in which case that exercise probably is the worst exercise for them. So a conclusion that I've noticed is that I think we have to really pay more attention to the prerequisites of motion, and we have to use more of our time training to acquire those prerequisites, and a little bit less time training the patternized movements that emerge based on the functionality of those joints. Which brings me to my next point, that if you want articular interdependence, you first need articular independence. It doesn't matter to me that the, the, the spine works with the hip in some amazing neurological way, that's awesome. But I know that if you don't have a segmenting spine, that spine really has no way of telling the brain where it is in three-dimensional space. So if you're walking around in neutral spine for your entire life and you don't actually put movement into the L5S1, your brain will quite honestly forget that you have an L5S1 and there's consequences. And you can't ask a spine that doesn't have an L5S1 to do squats because it's important for squatting. You can't ask someone to squat if they have no hips because having a hip is more functional than having a squat. Another conclusion I wanna make is that movements, as we know now by dynamic systems theory, movements are not stored. Movements are pruned and learned from afferents. Afferents are, is the filters that we use to learn movements with. So movement and the learning of movement is actually a natural selective process based on afferents, such that the body organizes, monetizes itself, and maintains itself via afferents. Another conclusion I'm going to make is that the body really sees itself from the inside out. The organization of the body sees itself from deep inside the body of the joints, and then it sees it way, its way outward. And I believe that we have to start to reflect our assessments, reflect our training and reflect our treatments in a way that we are also looking from the body inside out and we are approaching the body uh, from the inside out. And I will bring up the word workspace because that's going to come up a lot in my presentation. Just realize I have a lot of conclusions. Here's another one. Anatomical bioflow, which is what I call the meat wagon that surrounds your nervous system, the stuff that makes up your body. I don't really like to think of muscles and then joints and then ligaments, but a continuation of articular flow or of, sorry, rather tissue flow. And it's that tissue flow 
that creates afferents. And I want to remind that to people. Afferents is created by mechanoreceptors. And mechanoreceptors are just slightly altered normal tissues. All tissues undergo entropy, which is the gradual breakdown into disorder. And therefore, if we're not maintaining the tissues that provide the afferents on an ongoing basis, we are losing afferents, which means our body is losing track of where it is in three-dimensional space. Without quality, clean tissue afferents, we are less able to shape our action maps in our cortex. And without our action maps, we don't have a good way of executing movements. Thus, your pruning mechanism, the afferents, because it's made of your stuff, which is your tissues, your afferents is dependent on the quality of your stuff. And that is ongoing. You continuously learn how to move throughout your life. The brain is plastic. And the filters you use to learn with is your stuff. Your stuff is what's sending information to your brain, your tissues, your capsules. So the maintenance of the specific stuff, in my opinion, is more important than the maintenance of the patterns. So I believe that we should be moving into a tissue-specific training concept and a little bit further away from a pattern-specific training concept. The movements that we make are variable. We don't do them the same every time. So when you have a coach that's confining the variables and saying squat like this only, and your feet must be here and they must be turned out to 30 degrees and you must come down with your knees over your toes. What we're doing is we're confining movement variables and we're hammering the same line of tissue over and over and over. And if you hammer the same line of tissue, the same line of tissue cannot adapt indefinitely. So you will either accommodate or that tissue will end up exploding under the overforce, if that makes sense. So another conclusion is that based on that concept that our tissue is producing afferents, the capsule, which is the deepest tissue surrounding the joints, the capsular information is the first information to reach the central nervous system once a joint has been initiated in during a movement. And therefore, if the capsule information is bad, likely the resultant movement is not going to be optimal. That's why I'm going to conclude that workspace or the preservation of space should be the most important outcome measure that is utilized by, by anyone who cares about how people move. And by maintaining healthy joints with high degrees of freedom, with clean afferents, we can help people to ongoingly select for more efficient, complex, and adaptable human movements. So the major conclusion that I've said many, many times over the years is force is the language of cells and movement is what we say. So now I'm going to go and I'm going to start to explain how movement is a natural selective process. And by what I mean by that is movements arise and they arise by creating what we call self-organization or otherwise known as spontaneous order. So I'm going to read this slide. It's not a very nice slide. There's a lot of information. I promise not to read any more slides, but I'll read this one. So self-organization or spontaneous order is a process where some form of order arises from the local interactions, joints, between parts of an initially disordered system. And really, when we talk about the natural evolution of a human body, of the anatomy of the human body and how we move, what we're talking about is the creation of spontaneous order from disorder. Spontaneous order can occur if sufficient energy is available meaning there's no need for an external agent to create spontaneous order. As long as there's sufficient energy and that energy is bounded or contained, um, you will be able to take an unordered system and order it. 
that ordering will be amplified by a positive feedback loop. So if this system, this dynamic system has positive feedback as it's being ordered, it will happen more efficiently. And I just spoke to you about afferents as being the positive feedback loop used by our joints in the efficient natural selection of human movement. Also, the organization of a self-organized system is decentralized. I said that in the sum of the parts, there's only the parts. So the organization is distributed over all of the components of the system. The systems of self-organized are also robust and they also can undergo self-repair just like the human body. So what I'm gonna argue is that the human body is just a system that self-organized itself. And by self-organizing, we have a system where all of the energy can be contained and because it can be contained, the energy can be organized into something greater than the sum of the parts. Now, in order to tackle this topic over the years, I've always said that if you want to understand something deeply, you want to look at it from several different lenses. And I realized that in this room was a lot of doctors and trainers who have taken the biological approach to thinking about things. And the biological approach tells us a lot. However, I always say that our biology is created by our chemistry and our chemistry is governed by the natural laws of the physical universe. So we can say that biology is made by chemistry, which is governed by physics. Now, I know that everyone has thought about the human, humans, human movement and such in the biological realm, but I wanna think about it from the perspective of physics, because I believe that if we can make sense of what we're doing from the laws of the physical universe, it only strengthens our arguments as to what we decide to do biologically. And that's why if you've ever seen my, you know, my feeds or whatever, you'll notice that I have these three uh, pictures in my training room. And there to remind me to think about things amongst these lenses. The first one is, of course, the cover of the origin of species, denoting biology. The second is the periodic table of elements, denoting chemistry. And the third is the cosmic uh, microwave background radiation, which is pretty much the electromagnetic remnants of the Big Bang in the early universe to denote physics. So as I said, I'm going to look at this problem from the lens, starting off at least, the lens of physics. And I want to ask, what do the laws of the physical universe say regarding homo sapien fitness? We can explain fitness biologically, but can we explain what fitness means through the eyes of the physical universe? <clears throat> so Darwin, of course, everyone knows, really took a biological approach when he was coming up with Darwinian evolution, which is a theory of biological evolution stating that all species arise from and develop from natural selection of small inherited variations that increase in abilities, uh, an individual's ability to complete, survive, and reproduce. Again, a very good lens, but I want to look at it from a slightly different perspective. How about if we consider Darwinian evolution not from the lens of biology, but from the lens of physics? And in so doing, can we somehow create a concept not of biological fitness, but of molecular fitness that underlies that biological process? Because if we can find that, we will better be able to conclude that what we're doing at a biological level has a foundation of being right, if that makes sense. So what I want to get at is, is there somehow a goal of the universe? Does the universe have a goal in mind? And it turns out that there's a lot of smart people thinking about this question. And I'm going to draw on some of those, the work of those smart people. For example, uh, Ilya Prozhogin, who's a physical chemist and a Nobel laureate, uh, very uh, important in the development of chaos theory. Jeremy England, who is a physicist, a professor of uh, physics and uh, biophysics at MIT. And Frank Lambert, who's a chemical professor at, or he was at Occidental College. So I'm going to draw a lot on 
on their work. And I advise you, of course, to look at their work. But when you consider their work together, what you realize is that they kind of provide a reason for the universe to be here, so to speak. And in so providing that reason, you can also extrapolate a good reason why life would spontaneously evolve. So if you consider life in these terms, we can speculate a reason for life through the eyes of physics. And the reason for life through the eyes of physics, or at least what it really seems to be, at least it's very important, is to create entropy. If you were to say, what is the purpose of this universe? What is it trying to do? The one thing that for sure universally we know it's trying to do is it's trying to dissipate heat energy. From the early Big Bang until now, energy has been spreading out over the rapidly expanding universe as time expands. And that seems to be one of the main goals of the physical universe. So let's talk about entropy in this goal. Entropy is a thermodynamic quality, quantity but rather, representing the unavailability of a system's thermal energy for conversion into mechanical work, often interpreted as a degree of disorder or randomness in a system. It's also somehow, some, uh, sometimes discussed as a gradual decline from order to disorder. So any dynamic system like a human starts from an order and then it gradually decays into disorder. And that's the concept of entropy as it loses heat. Sir Arthur Stanley Eddington actually referred to entropy as the arrow of time, meaning that as time goes on, based on the second law of thermodynamics, all complex structures will decline into disorder with time. So my question now is, because we see examples in the universe of things creating order, for example, a plant, you see a plant starts to grow up, but a plant really doesn't grow back down. It grows up, meaning that it kind of takes energy and creates order to the energy. A rabbit, a human, clearly those things are able to take energy and create order. So the question is, how are we able to circumvent, so to speak, the universal goal of pre preventing disorder? Another way you can think of this is, how are we able to steal time in order to take disordered system and create pockets of order? And that's really what I want to talk about. And to highlight that, I'm going to reference Jeremy England again, who discussed something called dissipation-driven adaptation. And I'm going to read what the definition of that is. Dissipation-driven adaptation is that random groups of molecules can self-organize and more efficiently absorb and dissipate heat from the environment. So his hypothesis states that self, such self-organizing systems are an inherent part of the physical world. Now, what that means is, the world wants to create entropy and it wants to disorder and it wants to spread out heat energy. However, there are scenarios where you can take disorder and create order. However, as per this theory, the only way you can create order is if the order you create subsequently leads to more entropy. Does that make sense to everyone? So if you have uh, any molecules and you give it sufficient energy, the molecules can organize themselves, but only if the organization, the resulting organization results in more heat dissipation. Now, for life, that's a great way to explain life, right? Because life is a great way to absorb energy from the universe and convert that energy into work. How? By creating movement, which creates heat. So if the universal goal is entropy, life can be thought of as a tool to create energy or to create heat dissipation or to create entropy. So really we're doing the, the, 
job of the physical universe. There's other examples of this that you can see all over the place. For example, if two weather systems are coming and they clash into each other and there's an accumulation of too much energy, the universe will create a tornado in order to disperse the energy. If sunlight bombards a planet for long enough and there's a lot of energy pocketing in a particular area of the, of, of the um, planet, a good way to dissipate that energy is to grow a plant. Okay, so what I'm trying to tell you is that life seems to be a great tool for creating energy, or sorry, for creating entropy. So then we can think of training or adaptations as this process as create, of creating order. But again, the order that we create, we can only create the order if subsequently we can provide more heat energy to the universe. So when we train and we get stronger, these adaptations are rewards given to you by the physical universe because you're putting work into improving the tool whose job it is to create heat. I'm getting excited. So we can also say that the law of progressive adaptation, which all of us in the audience understands inherently from what we do, it is the law of thermodynamics. It is the same law. We are building energy dissipators, which aligns our goals with that of the fabric of the universe itself. So we have this universal goal now, and the universal goal is to create entropy or to dissipate heat. Before, if you were at my lecture, last time I lectured for the RCCSS, I talked a lot about why we were naturally selected to do. And I talked a lot about the fact that, you know, or sorry, what we were naturally selected to do. And I talked a lot about the fact that we were really naturally selected to be hunter gatherers. If you look at the genome of a homo sapien, the vast majority of our existence, we existed as hunter-gatherers, which means our genome was literally forged for us to be successful hunter-gatherers. So we've already discussed what we were naturally selected to do. But now I want to change the question, and I want to ask ourselves why we were naturally selected to do instead of what. And I just kind of gave you the, the answer. Why we were naturally selected is because we can create heat. And how do we create heat? We create heat through creating human movement. So my first major conclusion now is that movement creates heat. So the universal goal is to create entropy. And that entropy is provided for by living structures like ourselves by creating movement, which subsequently produces heat. So why then are we created? If we're created to produce heat, why were we naturally selected as we were? Well, the reason we were naturally selected, again, is to create heat to pay back the physical universe. A way to explain this, I'm going to quote Daniel Wolpart, who is a professor of neurobiology at Columbia University. And Daniel Wolpart is quoted as saying, we have brains or a brain for only one reason, and that is to produce adaptable and complex human movements. We have a brain for one reason and one reason only, and that's to produce adaptable and complex human movements. I'm sorry, it wasn't for Shakespeare. It wasn't for anything but that purpose. And the reason we know that to be true is because movement is the only way that we have of affecting the world around us, apart from sweating, which is also the release of heat. But other than that, the only way that we can have an effect on the outside world to create the heat that the energy, that the universe so desires is to move, there is no other way. So we can conclude that the only reason we have a brain is to produce complex and adaptable movements. Now, you might then think that because I said the only reason we have a brain is to produce movements, you might conclude then that a large part of the human brain is taken up 
by the, the creation and control of human movement. And you would be absolutely correct in saying so. Space or an understanding of space and how we move through space and space is multimodal, but space in all of its forms occupies approximately half of our cortex. And if you look at the human brain from an evolutionary standpoint, you'll see layers of the brain whereby the deepest brain, which is the oldest evolved portion of the brain, our reptilian brain comes first. Then we have a limbic brain that grew around that. And then we have a cortical brain with a neocortex that allows us to like ice cream and hate liver and like our wife sometime and, you know, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So we have our, our deepest brain, then we have brains that kind of grew on top of them through an evolutionary process. Now, if we think backwards in time though, people were thinking and objects were thinking and things were thinking long before we had voluntary consciousness. In other words, before we had language, before we had numbers, before we had all of these complex things, we were able to think because that's how we affected the world around us. And what that means is think or movement had to have its own logic. And it, what it also means is, is that movement actually forms the foundation for human thought. Movement and movement through space is the foundation of thinking. I would argue that without movement, there is no relevance for human thought specifically. And I will strengthen that argument by quoting Sam Harris, who's noted that intelligence only matters because you can do something with it to affect your survival. When you think about that, it's not a hard thing to understand. When, you know, when you're thinking about, you know, let's think of words themselves. I often ask my wife who speaks French, she's fluid in French. I go, what language are you thinking in? But then I stop and think, what a stupid question because she doesn't think in language you think in thoughts, even words themselves, or sorry, you think in movement, even words themselves are movements. Think of the word word. What is the word word? The word word means that I moved my vocal cords at a very specific angle, and then I pushed air via my diaphragm through these vocal cords, and I made a sound, word, word. But it's not a thing, it's a movement. Think of the number seven or numbers in general. There are no numbers, there is no number seven. Number seven is a, a construct that we use to be able to maneuver through our physical space. There is no number seven. The number seven is just something that we can use to denote that there's seven things that might be in our way, et cetera, et cetera. So at the foundation of human thinking is movement. And it's not my idea. This, if you wanna read more on this, please read the work of Barbara Tversky. And she will explain that uh, a lot more. She's a cognitive psychologist um, who really has laid down the foundation for this thought process of movement being the foundation of thinking. And what she notes is that space places two fundamental constraints on movements. And those constraints are reflected in the way we think. Those two constraints are simply proximity, things that are nearer are easier to get to than things that are far, and gravity. Going up is more effortful than going down. So when I take this coffee cup here, and I want to go and take a sip of coffee. I don't look at the coffee cup and I say, coffee, C-O-F-F-E-E, -E, cup, flex arm now, get cup, drink coffee. No, I look at the coffee cup. I define it in three-dimensional space because I think in space. I look at the edges and I look at the edges relative to the background. That helps me denote the distance. And then there's only two things that I have to overcome. How far is it away from me and how much energy do I need to expend? And then I get to take my drink of coffee without ever having to consider anything other than those two constraints. 
So we can actually conclude very strongly that movement creates thought. So now we have the universal goal, which is to create entropy. We have a means by which to do it because our nervous system was only really created to create movement, which subsequently produces heat. And now we have the idea that all of our thoughts, and I'm not talking here about conscious thoughts because the vast majority of our thoughts are subconscious and they're not under any type of free will. But for the most part, movement is what creates the foundation for human thought. Now, we have a goal, we have a, a universal goal, we have a biological goal to create complex adaptable movements. We have a, a mechanism, so to speak, for thinking. Now I wanna talk about what motivates us to move. So why do we decide to move into the environment? Because that's also a very important thing to have if we wanna create this spontaneous order of human movement. So in order to explain this concept, I'm gonna draw from the work of Daniel Lieberman and Long. Daniel Lieberman is by far one of my favorite authors on the topic of evolutionary biology. And I'm gonna take you through how they explain the motivation for almost anything, uh, but specifically regarding human movement. So I want everyone in the audience, if you don't mind, I want you to right now, whatever you're doing, I just want you to look up into your environment. I want you to look up and I want you to take a look around the room. Then I want you to look down and I want you to look down at the immediate area, which is, which is you're able to touch and feel with your hands. It just so happens that the brain is developed in a way that we have a, com a competing system that governs what we do in the environment in our immediate area versus what we do in our external environments. And the way those are um, defined, Lieberman would call the space in our immediate area our peripersonal space. Again, the, the spaces where we can pick things up and enjoy them and touch them in our, in, our, in our workspace. And then when we look up and we see our environment, the land of opportunity, he considers that our extrapersonal space. So we have peripersonal space, extrapersonal space. I'm gonna develop a, a few more concepts on top of this. In our peripersonal space, the things we have to move and, and manipulate things with are our capsular workspaces, which means the spaces we have in our capsules, and our articular workspaces, which is the amount of movement we can create using that capsular space to affect our outside environments. So we can call this articular workspace and capsular workspace in our peripersonal space. And when we look up into our extrapersonal space, we can call this our global workspace. Please do look up uh, Bernard Barr's and global workspace theory. I have no time to discuss it now, but for our purposes now, global workspace is our land of opportunity. We have competing chemicals that govern our peripersonal space and our extrapersonal space. Our peripersonal space is governed by things that we call here and now neurotransmitters, including serotonin, oxytocin, endorphins, endocannabinoids, which you get from smoking a joint, by the way, for all the Canadians in the audience. Our here and now neurotransmitters control our peripersonal space because they allow us to enjoy and experience all of the things that we have in our immediate area. As we, as we do enjoy these things, our here and now neurotransmitters rise. However, when we look up into the environment, if we just imagine, if we just stayed in our environment right now as it is, if we just stayed in our environment, I just spilled coffee all over my computer. Give me one second here. Much better. If we simply 
stay in the environment that's given to us, we would never ever affect the outside world. And if we couldn't affect the outside world, we would end up dying. We would enjoy ourselves immensely, but we wouldn't be able to acquire food or anything else that we need. So when we look up into the extra personal space, another chemical starts to rise and that chemical is called dopamine. Dopamine is the chemical of motivation. That is what forces us to go out into our external environment and forces us to explore and acquire things that we're going to need. I'm gonna point out the dopaminergic pathways here. I know we've probably all studied these dopaminergic pathways, but I think it's important to remember just how vast the dopaminergic pathways are. And the fact that these dopaminergic pathways, they have effect on every single part of the brain working from our oldest, deepest brain right into our neocortex. And I'm gonna specifically draw your attention to the nigrostriatal path. The nigrostriatal path, which is indicated here in orange, that's coming from a Niagara, or substantia nigra, and it's going to our caudate and our putamen. And you'll remember from neuroanatomy that that cre uh, creates what is known as our basal ganglia motor loop, which means that that loop is really what controls voluntary and vo non-voluntary human movement. So the conclusion that I want to get from this little section right now is that chemistry is what motivates movement. So now we have a universal goal, create heat and dissipate heat and create entropy. We have a means to do it, which means we have a biological goal for our nervous system, which is to create complex and adaptable human movements. We have a basis for thought, which is movement. And now we can say that our movements are motivated by chemistry. So you see what I'm doing? I'm trying to build um, some, uh, some kind of a confine so I can take energy and keep it within the system to create spontaneous order. I promise you I'm getting to the point of this, guys. So just stick with me. So chemistry motivates movement. Now, what do we need next? If we have our motivator, we have our universal goal, we have our biological goal, we have our foundation for thought. We know that thought is motivated by chemistry. What do we need now to actually produce movements? Well, what we need is space. Space is the canvas on which the nervous system is able to execute its biological purpose, which is to create complex and adaptable human movements. So now we have to talk about how we create space. And to talk about that, I'm gonna bring you back into embryology. Back into embryology, if we go back, um, you know, of course, one cell meets another cell, those cells start to divide, those cells create a morula, those cells then later divide into somites, et cetera, et cetera. I'm not going to go over all of biology, but I will take you back to week three. And at week three is where we have a differentiation of the primary germ layers. You will call the primary germ layers as being the endoderm, mesoderm, ectoderm. I'm going to focus in on two of them, the ectoderm and the mesoderm. The ectoderm, because the ectoderm is really what drives our neurological, our, our uh, biological purpose, our ectoderm will later form our nervous system, which is how we create complex and adaptable movements. Our mesoderm is what's going to create our stuff, our meat wagon, our skeletal system, our muscles, our fascia, etc. The reason I want to point this out is I want to remind you that all of this stuff came from the same glob of cells. The same glob of cells had to somehow differentiate. Now, if we put the ectoderm as being the most important thing for driving our biological purpose, we can think of the mesoderm, the meat, as growing off of the ectoderm. And that's exactly what it's doing. The mesoderm is the cilia that your ectoderm uses to learn about its environment, because there's no way for a brain to know about its environment if not for information coming in 
and information coming up. And the information coming up is coming up, is being generated by our meat. There's an intimate relation such that the myelin that is located on the nerves is actually created from mesoderm almost to, to, to keep a, a very close proximity. So I wanted to point out the fact that these layers grow off of one another and we should really consider the mesoderm being grown off of the ectoderm. Now, based on that, how is space made? We're at the three weeks, we have these three germ layers and now we have to decide where our joints gonna go. And I assure you this, you might think this is an easy understanding, but this took years of research and thinking to really understand why things are put where they're put. Why don't we have an arm that grows out of our head? Why is my shoulder here instead of here? Why is my hip here? There is a reason, and the reason has to do with what we call body plans. All living structures, all living things have a body plan. And what a body plan is, is just rough information given by our genome. It's an area of our genome that codes for what we call morphogens. Morphogens are proteins that are made from our genome. And the morphogens are created and sent out into the, the growing clump of cells, but it's not sent out at the same amount. So in other words, a lot of morph, a certain type of morphogen might go over here and a less amount of that morphogen might go over here, but a lot of a different morphogen might go into another area. So what we call this is morphogen gradients, okay? So a body plan has a genome part piece of the genome, which creates morphogens. These morphogens are spread out into the cells and we create a morphogen gradient, which creates a fluid force on the cells. This is the first time I'm gonna say that force is the language of cells. It's the fluid force from this morphogen gradients that occur that actually lead to durotaxis, which is uh, an attraction of cells into a particular area where force exists. So you have this morphogen gradients, you have these cells starting to clump together around these gradients. These cells are then gonna to start to actually contract and condense on themselves. This is what's called mesenchymal condensation, where the mesenchyme will start to condense on itself. And then once the mesenchyme condense on itself, it's gonna form what is here in, Z, in C, it's gonna form an interzone where we have this condensation of cells, which is gonna be specifically in the area we want joints to be. Now, as this, con this, this mesenchymal condensation continues, once the pressure gets so high, what's gonna happen is there's gonna be a cavitation. See, I'm talking to chiropractors. There's gonna be a cavitation where a space is gonna form in the middle of all of these cells. And that space is therefore then going to go on to make our joints. But are the joints in our anatomy, is that coded for? No, just the space. Because after the space is made, at around 14 weeks, muscle proteins start to get developed. And muscle proteins start to twitch. And be based on those twitches, that is going to lead to the morphogenesis of your joint. In other words, your joint is being carved, honed, shaped, and subsequently later maintained by human movement. Because force is the language of cells, and movement is what we say. So to conclude what I just said there, movement is what creates the space. Later, movement is what maintains the space because we all know that movement is really the only thing that can preserve the ongoing health of an articulation. You guys can inject glucosamine, fish oils into your joints, no matter what you do, if you're not moving your joint, it's not gonna stay healthy in time. 
So we can say that movement creates space, movement maintains space, and space governs movement because space really provides the landscape for us to move into. So I believe space to be the ultimate prerequisite measure of movement potential because space represents degrees of freedom that our body is allowed to move into. And via moving into these degrees of freedom, that is how we're ultimately going to create the heat that the, energy, the universe so desperately wants. So space is really the canvas or the fabric that the nervous system uses to execute its biological purpose, which is to create complex, adaptable human movements. Movement regulates the creation of space, and then movement regulates the ongoing preservation of that space. In our system, my system, Dr. Chivers is going to speak next, in the functional range system, we actually have a rule to govern everything we do from training to treatment to assessment, and that is workspace over everything. Your body decides how to set spindle tones. Your body decides which muscles should remain tight, should remain based on that space. And I'm going to explain that in the next section. And what that tells us is we should be spending way more time caring about the quality of our workspaces than about the patterning of exercises that we deem to be functional. It's the preservation of space and the preservation of degrees of freedom that allows us the expansion of time or to slightly circumvent entropy and take a disorder and create a spontaneous bit of order, which is a living creature. Now, this is space, okay? As you can see, if space has no boundaries, then it's really not useful for the nervous system to understand how to move within the space. There needs to be a boundary so that the nervous system can understand uh, how the space is and what the space is doing. How is that boundary made in a human body? Everyone look at the screen. It's made by that. It's made by creating a capsule. A capsule is not a something. It's just the deepest layer of bioflow tissue closest to the space. But because it's the deepest layer of tissue closest to the space, the mechanoreceptors that live within the tissue that make the capsule, as soon as movement is initiated, it is that signal that will be the first signal to feed back to the central nervous system, telling it how the movement is going. Ergo, if there's something wrong with your capsule or the capsular space, you're gonna have a really hard time teaching an athlete how to move better. The capsule denotes the space, it governs the space. The capsule itself dictates the space, so to speak, because it is what sends back information to the central nervous system to tell it how the space is doing. So you have the capsule dictating the space, you have the cavity, the synovium, the synovial fluid, the cartilage, the innervation, all within the space. And this space is a dynamic organ system, which by the way, is privy to entropy. So when someone comes in, you know, what exercise are we gonna do today? We're gonna do the bench press. We're gonna do a linear motion. That linear motion is not gonna be effective in stimulating all of the mechanoreceptors in your capsule. That's why we created controlled articular rotations as a way to continuously stimulate capsular tissue to ensure that we are constantly warding off entropy such that the mechanoreceptors remain healthy, such that the feedback mechanism to our central nervous system produces clean and effective afferents such that we can select for better human movements. Now, why is the capsular information so important? Let's go over a basic neuroanatomy 101. When information comes from, let's say from a muscle spindle or from skin, 
the information is going to come via afferent uh, paths and it's going to come into the dorsal root horn. At the dorsal root horn, there's a decision-making process. And I say decision-making process and I mean it. If you don't understand what I mean, please look up Seth Grant and look up the concept of synaptome architecture to convince yourself that there is logic and intelligence even in neuronal connections apart from the brain. We have no time for that today, but I will say that most afferent information, when it comes into the dorsal root home, a decision is made. Should I kick this up to the central nervous system, to the brain, or do we have a reflex at the spinal cord level that I can use to deal with this problem? So it goes into the dorsal root home, a decision made, and then that neuron synapses with, with, with what's called an interneuron, which will then synapse either on a path going up the spine or a path going out the ventral horn to try to deal with the problem. Because there's an interneuron, there is a time delay. It's a very small delay, but there is indeed a time delay where the decision has to be made. Where is there no time delay? There is no time delay coming from type 2 mechanoreceptors, which are low threshold, rapidly adapting mechanoreceptors. And guess where there's a lot of type 2 mechanoreceptors? In the deepest portion of the capsule. There's four types of mechanoreceptors. Type one is superficial in the superficial capsule. Type two is in the deep capsule. Type three is in what we call capsular thickenings, popularly known as ligaments. And type four are pain mechanoreceptors. The information coming from the type two receptors, a lot of which are located in the deep capsule, which gets the signal of movement first, they have what we call direct cortical representation, whereby information from those mechanoreceptors bypasses the dorsal root horn, does not have an interneuron delay, and makes it directly up to the thalamus where the information gets relayed into the, all of the areas of the cortex which are there to control human movement. Premotor cortex, motor cortex, supplementary sensory area, sensory cortex, cerebellum, all controlling human movement. Think about it. Why does the brain want the information specifically from the capsule and why does it want it first? Because preservation of the capsule is the outcome measure that governs all motor outputs. Someone has a, a tight back, you go and rub the back, the back feels better. Two days later, the back tightens up. Of course it tightens up because the space has to be examined. If that space isn't providing good clean afferents, it will send information to the nervous system saying, tighten up, something's wrong then we get tight muscles. Again, I'm trying to point out that we got to think way deeper when we're thinking about how to affect human movement. So the primary outcome measure for musculoskeletal output thus is the preservation of space. And I will point out again, the preservation of space is defined afferently by the capsule. The capsule is created by bioflow tissue and is that tissue that provides the mechanoreception that lets the brain know what is going on in three-dimensional space. And why I'm bringing this up is because, again, I think that we are spending far too much time with pretty displays of movements and snatches and cleans and all of this stuff, and we're not thinking enough about the quality of our client's afferents. By the way, the quality of the afferents has to be maintained. When was the last time people in the audience did, let's say, really hard rotational work for their rotator cuff? We do a lot of that work, which would be capsular specific, when we're injured. If somebody injures themselves, often we go to deep rotational work in order to rehab, and then we go right back to linear training. Let's do the bench press. Let's do the squat. 
let's do lateral raises. And then we forget that entropy is killing our mechanoreceptors day by day until something goes wrong. I think we really have to focus more on the afferents coming from these capsules. And another thing that I'm going to conclude here is that it's movement that creates that afferents and it's afferents that then begets motor learning. So if we were to review again, <clears throat> we have a goal for this, the universe, which is to create entropy or to dissipate heat. We have a biological purpose, which is to create movement, complex adaptable movements, which then creates heat. We have a, a motivating system being chemistry, which motivates thoughts. And we have thought, which really is only created by human movement. And we have that movement that feeds back afferents. So what I've really been trying to paint for you guys is a picture as to how life confines energy in order to create order. In order to create order from energy, we need to have what we call boundary conditions. And that's what's described um, by Stuart Kaufman. And these boundary conditions will contain the energy such that the energy can be organized. So right here, I'm giving you kind of that contained energy um, explanation. And I'm going to come back to it in one second, and we're going to explain it a little bit more. What I want to talk about now is I really want to focus again on these landscapes of movement. So once again, we have our capsular space, which is made embryologically. Based on that capsular space, it's movement, which will then start to mold that capsular space. Based on that capsular space, we have the ability or we have a landscape to move with if we look into our environment, we have what we call a global workspace. So I've just described number one and number three. Capsular space made as we're embryo. Global workspace is the environment we're allowed to work into. And then we have number two, which is our articular workspace. Our articular workspace denotes where we are able to produce work. And I remind you that the only way that we can create heat is to create movement. And the only way to create movement is to be able to create work. So our articular workspace denotes all areas that we are able to create work. <clears throat> it's our articular workspace, which is gonna shape our action maps because the capsular workspace and the articular workspace, these aren't real things. These exist in our brain. Why? Because our brain doesn't know what's going on. Our brain is very secluded. It's underneath half an inch of hard bone. We have no way of accessing in. It has no way of accessing out other than the information coming in and the information coming up. Nick Winkleman's gonna speak in a little bit later about the information coming in and how you can hone that information. I'm here talking about the information coming up and the information coming up is of vital importance because the information coming up, the afferents is the filters that we use ongoing to learn, modify and maintain human movement. That's why we created cars. Controlled articular rotations are an exploration of our workspace. Why do we do them? Because if you don't use tissue, if you're not using any of your tissues, your tissues go away. If your tissues really are either organizing energy to create order or they're degrading under the ongoing pressure of entropy. So we have to use these tissues. If we're not using our workspace in its entirety, the mechanoreceptors that govern the area back here, if you haven't activated them in 10, 20, 30 years, they're not there anymore. The brain will literally forget that you have this area and it'll be reflected when you watch someone do their controlled articular rotations because instead of giving you a very nice 
clean articular workspace, they're going to start to bleed movements into other areas. And it's that bleeding of movement and the lack of prerequisites that leads to compensations that leads to injury. So my main point here is that we have to be maintaining these workspaces on an ongoing basis. And if you want to assess a human being and what their potential is, there's no better way to assess the potential than to ask the joints, what are you able to do? And as far as I know, the only system that asks joints to repeatedly demonstrate what they're able to do, and the only system where people repeatedly analyze what joints are able to do is CARS, controlled articular rotations. So again, movement creates afferents. Afferents shapes the cortical action maps in our brain, and those cortical action maps are defined by our workspaces. And ergo, the quality of our action maps are directly proportionate to the quality of the afferents, which is directly proportionate to the quality of the tissue, which is directly proportionate to the quality of the mechanotransduction that's feeding back to our central nervous system. So now I've given you all of the, the, the what we call again, the boundary conditions or what Stuart Coffert would call the boundary conditions that allow us to contain this energy and allow us to set a, a, a system in motion where we can use this system to naturally select for ongoing human movements. So what do we have here? We have um, the things that we have to overcome by thought, which is proximity and gravity. We have our motivation system, which is our chemistry. We have a universal goal of producing heat. We have a biological goal of producing motion in order to create heat. We have our landscapes, our capsular workspace, our articular workspace, and then our global workspace, which represents our environment. So what is the only missing ingredient we need to create human movement? We need an attractor. We need a reason to get motivated. We need some kind of driving reason for us to actually get off our lazy asses and move into the environment to create that heat. And what is the ultimate attraction for human movement? It's the concept of acquisition. The need for things, the need to acquire things is the simplest of all human instincts along with the conservation of energy. And is that desire to acquire things which drives the natural selection of human movements. If you look at a baby, when a baby's first born, they're just giving these flexion twitches and these extension twitches, and then they're tasked to learn about their environments. The motivating factor is the chemistry, but the attractor is to be able to acquire things. You need to acquire food, you need to acquire love, you need to acquire shelter, because if you don't, you will not be able to survive. So based on all of these bounding, these um, boundary conditions, why are we naturally selected to move? I come back to the original question. Where do we get the movements from? Why do movements exist the way that movements exist? So the first thing I will say is that movements are not stored. There is no little Dre sitting in Dre's brain at the helm of a computer with a bunch of programs ready to fire. So when Big Dre wants to squat, there is no little Dre in my consciousness looking through a list of programs and saying, you know, Turkish get up, no. Bicep curl, no. Squat, oh, there's the squat. I'll take that in, I'll put it in, press enter. There is no center of consciousness. There is no movements that are stored. Movements are selected for on an ongoing basis based on efficiency. So using the primitive reflexes that we're given, flexion twitches, extension twitches, that starts the natural selective process whereby we're competing for the most efficient ways
to make it towards our attractor state. So it's movement that drives motor learning and motor learning is a process of microevolution or natural selection of efficient ways to move. So the patterns that we get don't live there. There is no squat. If you take a baby and you put it in a box and you do not allow any sensory information, there's not even the foundation for human thinking, let alone the foundation to create a squat. Squats are not coded for. We learn to squat based on efficiency. Now, to explain this, I'm really drive this home. I'm gonna give the worst example I have ever given in my career. It, I am not asking anyone to do this. I am not condoning this in any way. It's just an example. Let's say that all of us in this, uh, in this conference went to the local hospital and we pumped you know, noxious gas through the hospital, okay? The noxious gas only kills adults. Are you guys with me so far? Really? You shouldn't be with me. It's a horrible thing. But stay with me. I, I don't want you to do this, but just let's pretend. So we pump this gas through the, the hospital. All the adults are gone. So we're going to take all the babies from the neonatal unit. Oh, sounds good? Yes? Okay. So now we have all the babies, and we're going we're gonna, to we're gonna put the babies on, on a boat. We're not going to throw the babies. I'm not a monster. We're going to be nice. We're going to put the babies on a boat, you know, very comfortable, everything. Then we're going to sail off, and we're going to go to a secluded island. And then we're just going to, again, we're not going to throw them, but we're going to leave the babies on the island. And the only thing that we're going to leave for them is a stick with a pig's head on it. Nobody got that? Lord of the Flies? No? Okay, anyway. So we're going to leave a stick with a pig's head on it. We're going to leave the babies there, and we're going to come back 10 years later. So we're going to come back 10 years later. And by some act of the sun god Ra, these babies survive. Okay? So now they're 10-year-olds. They're not babies anymore. Do you know what we're not going to find on that island? We're not going to find a bunch of crawling, butt-scooting babies. All of those babies, despite the fact that there were no movement coaches, there were no physiotherapists, there were none of us there, all of those babies will eventually figure out that the most efficient way to acquire things is to get up on two feet and run there. And they're going to do it not based on preconceived programs, but based on the fact that with the anatomy that you're given, the most efficient way for us to locomote is to get up and start walking. So movements are being pruned and learned, and they're being learned through the lens of your afferents. And therefore, your pruning and learning mechanism is dependent on the quality of your stuff. And I don't think that we spend enough time working on the quality of our stuff. I think we need to spend a lot more time doing tissue-specific training and less time doing pattern-specific training because the selection is ongoing. And I remember taking my kids to learn how to ski not too long ago, and, it, and I paid some guy to do it, and it was a stupid idea because all he did was put my kids at the top of the, my six-year-old, the top of the ski hill and said, you know, lean forward and see how it goes. And my kid just leaned forward and skied all the way down. There was a couple next to us who was about 55 years old who was learning how to ski for the first time. Six hours later, they could barely stand up. Why? Because my son has clean afferents and they do not. So articular training and maintenance of our articulation specifically must be our highest priority 
in order to maintain clean afferents because afferents is how we learn how to move. And if we can maintain healthy joints with high degrees of freedom, we will be able to select for more efficient and more adaptable complex movements, movements with patterns that are able to deal with more variables because as we all know, we are a dynamic system under dynamic systems theory. And we got to get away from this idea of only patterning the same tissue over and over. So the moral of the story is if we want better movement capacity, we need cleaner filters. So I guess if we're going to uh, go over all of this, we can, we can summarize this by saying the universal goal of the universe seems to be to create entropy. Movement or heat, movement creates heat. So the biological goal is to create complex and adaptable human movements. Movements also are the driving mechanism for thoughts and the thoughts that we have are motivated by our chemistry. The space is created by movements, which is thereafter maintained by, uh, the space is maintained by movement and it's movement that creates the afferents, which leads us to motor learning. So getting back to the conclusions, which I wanna run through again, and I'm just gonna highlight some of the most important parts. In the sum of the parts, there's only the parts. If your shoulder does not have the articular workspace to do overhead presses, then overhead presses are no longer functional. So just because you think that snatches are great, if you ask a person to show you their workspace and their shoulder flexion is coupled with a lot of back extension, then guess what you're gonna be stressing when you put something over your head? You're gonna be stressing something that is not your shoulder. And because shoulders were evolved from, from a natural selective process, you have to agree with me that there is something to be a shoulder that is not the same as being a hip or a knee. And therefore we cannot allow compensations for shoulders. Movement is medicine if we're specific with it. We need to be very careful about putting specific movement into specific joints. Think of neutral spine guys. Think of how we have everyone walking around not moving their spine at all and bending down and hinging at the hips all the time. I'm not saying neutral spine is a bad concept, but what I am saying is show me a way to maintain the health of a human articulation without movement. There is no way. So by telling people you must always move with the spine in this position, I don't think that's the smartest idea. Our, our, our tissue will not be able to send information to our brain to know where we are in space. So we want people to brace and we want people to be able to use their tissues. But if our brain doesn't know our tissues are there, then the brain's not gonna be able to use the stuff that was evolved for them to control movements with. We have to be better on, on, on capturing prerequisites. And the only way I know how to capture prerequisites is detailed analysis of workspace, which is why we have controlled articular rotation. Articular interdependence cannot be assumed before articular independence. Movements are not stored. They're selected for based on afferents. That afferents is based on our tissue quality, which means that we should spend more time with tissue specific training, which I know Dr. Shivers is gonna, is gonna elaborate on, versus patterns. Our body sees itself from the inside out and we must remember that the outcome measure we use to move with is the preservation of that space. Capsular afferents is the first thing to reach the central nervous system and therefore we have to do a better job of creating, maintaining, and, and keeping healthy all of the tissues that provide our workspace. Because if we have healthy joints with high degrees of freedom, with clean afferents, we will select for the most efficient and complex human movements available. How's my time? Okay, so I guess I can conclude there. Um, 
I could go on for about 17 more hours, but I know that Dr. Chivers is going to elaborate on some of these topics and then he's going to take it into a, another one of our, our tangents. Um, so I'm looking forward to see how he does that. So I guess that's it for me, guys. I really do appreciate the time. I hope I didn't speak too quickly, but I, I did want to give you uh, not just a bunch of research papers and results. I wanted to give you my thought process that, that really honed the way that I um, deal with the athletes that we deal with. 